Hi, and welcome to this latest podcast from 1914 to 1918war.com. In this episode, we'll be starting a new book. Uh, We're reading Five Months at Anzac. As always, I'll urge you to go across and sign up for the Substack uh, newsletter. Every week you get a summary of World War I news from around the the internet, uh, plus a look ahead to some anniversaries that are happening in the uh, following week, and you'll be on the list for receiving notifications of longer-form articles that I put out. So as you can see, it's well worth signing up for. It's completely free, uh, but there is the option of signing up for premium content if you want to support the project further. And you can always unsubscribe if you don't like it. Right, let's get on with the show. The opening two chapters of this book uh, follow convoy moving from Australia up to Egypt. Uh, There's a number of ship names that have been censored within the original text, what I've done here is I've either said that they're a censored ship or I've glossed over it using just generic terms like the ship or the ship we were going to. Uh, hopefully it doesn't make too much difference to the text uh, and it certainly makes it a bit more readable and hopefully listenable. Right, let's get on with it. Everything you hold for a file is at stake. Nur durch starke Berührung mit der See können wir den für uns nötigen Weltumfang geistigen Hochfang gewinnen. Five Months at Anzac, a narrative of personal experiences of the officer commanding the 4th Field Ambulance, Australian Imperial Force, by Joseph Leavesley Beeston, CMG, VD, LRCSI, Colonel AAMC, Late OC, 4th Field Ambulance, Late ADMS, New Zealand and Australian Division. First published, 1916. Dedicated to the officers, non-commissioned officers and men of the 4th Field Ambulance, AIF, of whose loyalty and devotion to duty the writer hereby expresses his deep appreciation. Chapter 1. Fourth Field Ambulance Shortly after the outbreak of the war, after the first contingent had been mobilised, and while they were undergoing training, it became evident it would be necessary to raise another force to proceed on the heels of the first. Three infantry brigades, with their ambulances, had already been formed, orders for a fourth were now issued, and naturally the ambulance would be designated Fourth Field Ambulance. The 4th Brigade was comprised of the 13th Battalion, New South Wales, 14th, Victoria, 15th, Queensland, and 16th, Western Australia, commanded respectively by Lieutenant Colonel Burnage, Lieutenant Colonel Courtney, Lieutenant Colonel Cannon, and Lieutenant Colonel Pope. The brigade was in charge of Colonel Monash, VD, with Lieutenant Colonel McGlynn as his brigade major. As it will be necessary from time to time to allude to the component parts of the ambulance, it may be as well to describe how an ambulance is made up. It is comprised of three sections, known as A, B and C, the total of all ranks being 254 on a war strength. It is subdivided into bearer, tent and transport divisions. Each section has its own officers and is capable of acting independently. Where there is an extended front, it is frequently desirable to detach sections 
and send them to positions where the work is heaviest. As the name implies, the bearers convey the wounded to the dressing station, or field hospital as the case may be. Those in the tent division dress the cases and perform nursing duties, while the transport division undertakes their conveyance to base hospital. It was decided to recruit the 4th Field Ambulance from three states, A section from Victoria, B from South Australia, C from Western Australia. Recruiting started in Broadmeadows, Victoria on the 19th of October 1914 and 30 men enrolled from New South Wales were included in A section. Towards the end of November, B section from South Australia joined us and participated in the training. On the 22nd of December, we embarked on a transport, forming one of a convoy of 18 ships. The 19th ship, censored, joined after we left Albany. Details from the ambulance were supplied to different ships and the officers distributed among the fleet. Our last port in Australia was Albany, which was cleared on the last day of 1914. A beautiful night and clear day, with the sea as smooth as proverbial glass. Chapter 2 the voyage. The convoy was under the command of Captain Bruis, a most capable and courteous officer, but a strict disciplinarian. To a landsman, his control of the various ships and his forethought in obtaining supplies seemed little short of marvellous. I had the good fortune to be associated with Captain Bruis on the passage from Colombo to Alexandria on board the Censored, and his friendship is a pleasant memory. The fleet was arranged in three lines, each ship being about three lengths astern of the one ahead. The sight was most inspiring, and made one feel proud of the privilege of participation. The, and another ship name censored here, towed the submarine AE2, and kept clear of the convoy, sometimes ahead, then astern, so that we viewed the convoy from all points. The next paragraph contains the names of two ships uh, interchangeably. I'll call them Ship A and Ship B rather than just saying censored. The day after leaving Albany, a steamer, which proved to be the Ship A, joined us with C-section of our ambulance. Signals were made for the Ship A to move ahead and then the Ship B to drop astern. The Ship A moving into the vacant place. The manoeuvre was carried out in a most seamanlike manner and Captain Young, of the Ship A, received many compliments on his performance. Three days later, a message was flagged from another censored name, that Major Stewart, who commanded the C-section of the ambulance, was ill with enteric, and that his condition was serious. The flagship then sent orders, also by flag, Colonel Beeston will proceed to the ship, and will remain there until the next port, the ship, to provide transport. A boat was hoisted out, and Sergeant Draper as a nurse. Walkley, my orderly, my little dog Paddy, and I were lowered from the boat deck. What appeared smooth water proved to be a long undulating swell. No water was shipped, but the fleet at times was not visible when the boat was in the trough of the sea. However, the ship we were heading to was manoeuvred so as to form a shelter and we gained the deck by means of the companion ladder as comfortably as if we'd been in the harbour. Major Stewart's illness proved to be of such a nature that his disembarkation at Colombo was imperative, and on our arrival there he was left in the hospital. The heat in the tropics was very oppressive, and the horses suffered considerably. 
One day all the ships carrying horses were turned about and steamed for twenty minutes in the opposite direction in order to obtain a breath of fresh air for the poor animals. In the holds the temperature was ninety degrees and steamy at that. The sight of horses down a ship's hold is a novel one. Each is in a stall of such dimensions that the animal cannot be knocked about. All heads are inwards and each horse has his own trough. At a certain time of the day, lucerne hay is issued. This is the signal for a prodigious amount of stamping and noise on the part of the animals. They throw their heads about, snort and neigh, and seem as if they would jump over the barriers in their frantic effort to get a good feed. Horses on land are nice beasts, but on board ship they are a totally different proposition. One intelligent neddy, stabled just outside my cabin, spent the night in stamping on an adjacent steam pipe. Consequently, my sleep was of a disturbed nature, and not so restful as one might look for on a sea voyage. When he became tired, the brute on the opposite side took up the refrain, so that it seemed like more signalling on a large scale. We reached Colombo on the 13th of January, and found a number of ships of various nationalities in the harbour. Our convoy almost filled it, we were soon surrounded by boats offering for sale all sorts of things, mostly edibles. Of course, no one was allowed on board. After arranging for Major Stewart's accommodation at the hospital, we transferred from the ship he'd been on to another ship. The voyage was resumed on the 15th. When a few days out, one of the ships flagged that there were two cases of appendicitis on board. The convoy was stopped, the ship drew near ours, and lowered a boat with the two cases, which was soon alongside. Meanwhile, a large box, which had been made by a carpenter, was lowered over the side by a winch on the boat deck. The cases were placed in it and hoisted aboard, where the stretcher-bearers conveyed them to the hospital. Examination showed that operation was necessary in both cases, and the necessary preparations were made. The day was a glorious one, not a cloud in the sky, and the sea almost oily in its smoothness. As the hospital was full of cases of measles, it was decided to operate on deck a little aft of the hospital. A guard was placed to keep inquisitive onlookers at a distance, and the two operations were carried out successfully. It was a novel experience to operate under these conditions. When one looked up from the work, instead of the usual tiled walls of a hospital theatre, one saw nothing but the sea and the transports. After all, they were ideal conditions, for the air was absolutely pure and free of any kind of germ. While the convoy was stopped, the opportunity was taken to transfer Lieutenant Colonel Bean from one ship to another. There had been a number of fatal cases on board the latter vessel, and it seemed advisable to place a senior officer on board. On arrival at Aden, I had personal experience of the worth of the Red Cross Society, a number of cases had died aboard one of the transports, and I had to go over to investigate. The sea was fairly rough, the boat rising and falling ten or twelve feet. For a landsman to gain a ladder on a ship's side under these conditions is not a thing of undiluted joy. Anyhow, I missed the ladder and went into the water. The first fear one had was that the boat would drop on one's head. However, I was hauled on board by two hefty sailors. The inspection finished we were rowed back to our own ship, wet and cold. By the time home was reached, I felt pretty chilly. A hot bath soon put me right. 
and a dressing gown was dug out of the Red Cross goods supplied to the ship, in which I remained while my clothes were drying. Sewn inside was a card on which was printed, Will the recipient kindly write his personal experiences to George W. Parker, Dalesford, Victoria, Australia? I wrote to Mr. Parker from Suez. I would recommend everyone sending articles of this kind to put a similar notice inside. To be able to acknowledge kindness is as gratifying to the recipient as the knowledge to its usefulness is to the giver. The voyage to Suez, which was reached on the 28th of January, was uneventful. We arrived there about four in the morning and found most of our convoy around us when we got on deck at daylight. Here we got news of the Turks' attack on the canal. We heard that there had been a brush with the Turks in which Australians had participated and all the ships were to be sandbagged around the bridge. Bags of flour were used on the name of a ship, which we can assume must have been a food supply ship. The submarine cast off from the ship that was towing it outside and came alongside our ship. I was invited to go and inspect her and Paddy accompanied me. On going below, however, I left him on the deck and by some means he slipped overboard. This appears to run in the family on this trip. One of the crew fished him out and he was sent up onto the deck of the ship alongside. When I got back, I found Colonel Monash, the brigadier, running up and down the deck with the dog so that he would not catch cold. The colonel was almost as fond of the dog as I was. And as we reach harbour in Egypt, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks for listening. Please try out the substack at 1914 And just a quick side note of celebration. Thank you very much. We have reached 20,000 downloads of this podcast between us. So uh, thank you for sticking with it. See you at the next episode. Bye.